Well, good morning, friends, dear friends. Uh, glad to be here again. Um, as Jeff said, we will continue with Jacob. We're going to actually conclude with Jacob this week. And uh, we're going to conclude with Jacob this week. This is our fourth uh, session or, or message on the life of Jacob. And just a reminder, this is part of a larger series where we started several months ago uh, examining a couple other personalities and characters in the Bible, that of Abraham and then David, subsequent to that. And both of them um, were trying to answer a couple, a couple questions. Uh, we, we were really running these questions uh, through uh, as a thread through all of these messages. And the first one is we're trying to take hold of, you know, what is God's desire? What is, what is his heart's desire? Reminded from that scripture in Acts where David is called a man after God's own heart. And so that is one question. The next question is, is, well, what about the rest? We were reminded and convicted, really, from the Ephesians 2 passage that said, you know, that it reminded us as, as believers, he was, Paul was talking to the church in Ephesus saying, um, you know, remember that you uh, were once dead in your trespasses and you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, so that really those two thoughts were kind of interwoven and it's been kind of our burden of the church of Jeff and the leadership is to, to try and go after God's heart in this sermon series and to try and have it focused on what does, uh, you know, what does God's heart say about the rest of mankind. And uh, this is all kind of preparatory, by the way, because as, as Jeff, I think a, a few weeks ago, a month ago, he kind of laid out our plan for the fall. And uh, so we're really hoping to lay some, some uh, ground here uh, that will be used to kind of springboard into our, our fall sermon series on, on uh, outreach and evangelism. And, uh, and that's going to be just a really, really um, exciting time for me. I'm really jazzed about that and, and, uh, and looking forward to that. So we're going to turn again back to, to Jacob. Uh, today's reading came out of Genesis 33. And I just want to make uh, some observations here. Uh, the first one is that there's, there's something good that we find here in Genesis 33. You know, not everything about Jacob is bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Jacob and about his deceitfulness, his thievery, his trickery, his uh, scheming, his controlling uh, parts of his personality. But here in 33, he's come a long way now. And the first thing we want to observe are some good things, okay? So the first thing that, that I want to highlight, and I'm going back to uh, Genesis 33, I'm going, to, I'm going to start at verse 4, and there's a few things I want to highlight for you that I think I feel tell us that, that something's happened to the, both these men. If you recall, 20 years prior, uh, Esau and, and Jacob headed out, right, where uh, Jacob uh, stole his father's blessing, which was rightly due, the, the firstborn and Esau, and uh, Esau wanted to kill his brother. And so his mom and his dad said, you got to get out of town and head on up to Haran where his uh, forefathers lived, find a wife, just get away, stay up there, and be safe. So there was, there was quite a bit of hatred, of um, animosity between the two. And so here we find at verse 4, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. I think that's significant. Prior to this scripture, uh, we, we read about the tremendous fear that Jacob was wrestling with in his heart. He was fearful for his life. In fact, he was doing all kinds of things to scheme and to plan out how he can save some of his, of his uh, people and some of his flocks by dividing them and, and, and in the event that Esau would would launch a, an attack uh, on his people. But to his surprise, he found grace in this situation. He found his brother run to him 
and embrace him and kiss him and weep upon him. And also what we see here is we see Jacob weep. We see Jacob weep. It says they wept. They wept. So what we, what we can take from this is that both of their hearts were, I venture to guess, there was remorse there. There was a desire to reconcile. There was perhaps regret over what had transpired 20 years prior. And then you also see in Jacob's life, it's almost to a fault where he's trying to almost make restitution for what had transpired prior. He sent all these gifts to his brother Esau, you know, just one after another. And Esau comes with a question. He says, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And Jacob in turn says, he says, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. You see that there's no longer this, this haughtiness on the part of Jacob, but this rather this humility now. He's bowing down and he's submitting to his brother. He's acknowledging that, that he owes his brother something, perhaps, that he wants to make restitution. And then he goes on further, which is also something really uh, insightful into the heart of Jacob. He says at verse 10, For I have seen your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. We've talked throughout this series about how God kept appearing to Jacob and kept confronting him and kept showing him uh, his blessing and his goodness upon Jacob's life in in spite of of his character flaws. And and here, it seems like Jacob is making a connection here to, uh, this is, by the way, this is right on the heels of him wrestling with God and seeing God face to face. And he's saying, brother, in your grace, I see reflected the grace of God. And so he's, he's finally recognizing grace in his life. He recognizes the grace that's been given to him, the mercy that's been given to him by the, by the Lord. And he sees that reflected in his brother's heart. And so, so with that, though, uh, comes the not-so-good. What we find here in the latter part of the Scripture is, is really this tone of a reappearing of Jacob's uh, deceitful heart. Uh, he's not quite done yet. <laughs> He's not quite done yet. Let me go ahead and read that, starting in verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servants, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Ser. That's where Esau is from. He's saying, I'm going to follow you to Ser. And Esau, you know, wants to care for his brother now. So Esau goes further and he says, Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. You know, I, I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. I want to guide you. I mean, this is, this is country you're not familiar with. I want to take care of you. But here comes Jacob. Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sarah, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name is called Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padamaram, and camped before the city. As I suggest there, we see this undertone. It's not clear. It doesn't convey to us exactly what his motivation was, uh, Jacob, for kind of putting off Esau's uh, 
offer to accompany him with his people. We also know that he did not go along with Esau down to Sarah. And just to put it in perspective, I want you to understand what is happening here. Haran, his Aran, is up in the north, is far away. That's where uh, his uncle Laban lived, and that's where Jacob went and stayed with him for 20 years of refinement and teaching and discipline of the, of the Lord. And the Lord God up there, he says, now go back to Canaan. And so he comes back to Canaan, and right there at Mahanaim is where, if you remember, he, that's where he saw all the angels of God before him, and he was confronting his brother. He continues to journey to Penuel. That's that right there in the middle. That is where he wrestles with God. That's the story where we studied a, uh, a few weeks ago where God gives uh, Jacob the new name of Israel. And, and what we concluded was he gives him a new identity in God. Okay, So this has occurred. He's already wrestled with God. The, you know, all these manifestations, all these blessings, all these visions have occurred to Jacob. And his brother is coming from Sarah, which is, you might see this in, in biblical writings. It's called Edom sometimes. Uh, that's where, where Esau lived, and he lives down here in the south, uh, and, and he journeyed up that red, that red line up to Penuel, and he meets him in Penuel. And so Esau is saying, come along, brother, come with me, uh, journey with me. And Jacob says, yes, I will follow you. I will follow you. I'll follow you to Sarah. But let me just go at my own pace. Esau says, but I'll leave you some people. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry about that. I'll go at my own pace. And then as soon as Esau takes off, he takes a, a hard right turn to Succoth right there. And then he journeys into Shechem. He doesn't go anywhere near Sarah. Now, it may be, and, and it certainly is true, that the Lord commanded him to go back to Canaan. So he had to go back to his father's land. That's where the Lord commanded him to go. But what's really significant in my mind is the fact that Jacob didn't even make mention of that. There's this, again, this undertone, again, of this old character of Jacob, of this deceitfulness, where he wouldn't even be forthcoming as to why he needed to continue on to Canaan. You know, perhaps he didn't want to tell his brother, you know, God commanded me to go back to Canaan, because that might dredge up old memories, right, and old rivalries. Because I don't know if you remember, there was a prophecy to his mom, Rebecca. And in that prophecy to Rebecca, the Lord said that the older shall serve the younger. And so maybe that found its way in the family stories. And maybe Jacob used it to kind of abuse and, and taunt his brother, saying, hey, one day you're going you're gonna to bow down before me. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know why he, he did not want to tell his brother this, but he didn't. He could have been forthright and told him. You know, and maybe he was just more afraid. Maybe at this point he still just did not trust his brother. He didn't trust him, fully trust him. I mean, he, didn't, he knew that his brother was perhaps a, a hot-headed uh, individual, and he just he didn't want to go down there. He didn't want to jeopardize his people, and so it was all about self-preservation. Whatever the reason is, it wasn't entirely truthful. And I think the writer of the Scriptures trying to tell us that there was still something not, not right going on here. So the question that I offer us to ponder today is, why do we, as believers in Jesus Christ, those that are born again in Jesus Christ, still tend towards thinking in lives of self-preservation and self-exaltation, you know, similar to what we see in the life of Jacob? With that, I'll turn us to uh, the book of Galatians, and that was our second reading today.
in Galatians 5, 17. Very short, very sweet, but it tells us the reality of our situation. 5.17, it says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Uh, Paul speaks about this uh, reality, this truth here in Galatians. He also speaks about it in the book of uh, Romans in, in chapter 7. Uh, where he talks about uh, the fact that there's ongoing warfare, this waging warfare between this, this law of, of, uh, that, is, that is in his members with the law of his mind and the spirit, and it's, it's ongoing. And, it's, and if you go and read that text, it's all in present tense. It is talking about the current situation of the believer, as is this text. We also kind of see uh, this thought uh, conveyed to us in the book of First John, where John says that if we say we have no sin then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, there's this reality that exists in the born-again believer. It's this, this notion of already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. See, we are already, we talked about this a few weeks ago, in Christ Jesus. Remember we talked about, when we were talking about Jacob's identity, we talked about how Jacob received the new identity as Israel, and that God was going to strive for him, that God was going to fight for him, defend him, because he promised him that he would always be with him. Likewise, we believers in Christ Jesus, we, we read about that, the scripture from Romans 6. Go back and read Romans 6. It's all about our identity, that once we were under the authority of sin, and now, as believers in Christ Jesus, we are under the authority of grace in Christ Jesus. And that is a transaction that happens once for all and is never lost, never thrown away. The Lord will not allow us to be snatched out of his hands. But the reality is that that was the already, but the not yet is that we are not holy as our Father is holy. In terms of our sanctification, we are in terms of position. But in terms of our, how we live out in our lives day to day, we still sin. We still sin. And that, Paul explains to us, is because we have this idea of flesh. And what is flesh? The, the word flesh is used in, in numerous contexts in the Bible. A lot of times when Paul's using this, this word in, in, in his writings, he's talking about this, this uh, disposition this human disposition that is intrinsic to all of us that is bent on rebellion against God's ways, against his purposes, against his desires. It is bent on self-exaltation. It is bent on self-preservation. It is bent on self-fulfillment. That is what he's talking about in this. Now, there's two truths that, that I want you to, again, take a hold of here. One is that this battle that Paul talks about in Galatians, that he talks about in Romans 7, that John talks about in 1 John, it's a relentless battle. It's a relentless battle. If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We have to understand that for some reason the Lord has ordained that this is how he's going to work this out. And uh, we won't see the flesh eradicated until glory. Now, we will see fruits of His Spirit. We will see changes. As the Spirit of God indwells us, we will see that that change comes about. But it'll be slowly. But it will be relentless. And this battle will be relentless. 
But the other thing that when we think about it as a relentless battle, the thing that you fundamentally have to take hold of and never let go is what I just finished saying, is that it does not change our position in Christ Jesus. In no way. And this ought to free us, right? This reality, this truth ought to free us. The fact that I know I'm fighting this, and so I sin today, and I sin tomorrow, and I'm, and I'm fighting, and I'm praying, and I'm trying to you know, ask the Lord, come help me and help me. And okay, I know that, but I also got to grab hold of the more fundamental truth, and that is that I am His. I am His forever. There's nothing that I do today that's going to jeopardize that. Nothing, nothing, okay? So, so the next thing I want to bring this to is, well, how do we make this connection to the rest? What does this mean in terms of our witness to the rest? The first thing I would offer to you is that, as I said, the flesh is set on self-exaltation. And what this can often mean is that um, as we get into our religiosity, as we get into our church life, into our holy huddles, we can start to get a really good opinion about ourselves. You know, it's, 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 it's amazing that, that, um, that as we as pursuing God, you know, uh, our flesh will come and find an angle to take advantage of us. And that can happen to us. As we convey, convene here, we can just get very comfortable and we can start to say that we're really pretty good people and we follow all the Ten Commandments and those people, they are just living depravity out there. They are just heathens out there. You know, we should condemn them. We should just protest all the things that they do. But we forget. We forget in those moments that once, once we were dead in our trespasses and we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The second point I'll make to you is, is that, as I indicated, the flesh is all about self-preservation. And this is an interesting one because uh, it can find its, its way in, in a, manifested in a lot of different ways. We will want to protect ourselves like, like Jacob did in this story. He wants to protect himself. He, he's not, even though he's seen God in so many ways, protect him and provide for him, he's, he's going to still arrange to protect himself. We can also see this in, in, in pride. It manifests itself frequently in pride. And, and by the way, at the root of pride, most, most of the time, I mean, it can be nar- true narcissism, <laughs> but it can also be rooted in insecurity, terrible insecurity. And I got an interesting story for you on, on this count. Um, during uh, one of my courses, uh, one of the assignments was that we had to go witness, share the gospel with six strangers, well, or six non-believers, let me say that. Six non-believers. Different demographics they asked for, you know, they wanted different backgrounds, belief backgrounds, and so forth, ages, and so forth. And that was a tough assignment. <laughs> That was a really tough assignment. I made it through a few. You know, I don't know why it is. Some cases, it's easier than others. You know, it's just the, the situation, the, the doors open. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've had past conversations. Well, the one that I really, really struggled with was witnessing to my mother-in-law. 
my four foot ten, beautiful, loving, sweet little Japanese mother-in-law who weighs all about 80 pounds and uh, is sweet as all, all can be. Just, I love her to death. And, and I knew I had to share the gospel with her. And Carol, by the way, has tried to share the gospel with her numerous times. We're, we're pray for her. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was paralyzed with fear. I was paralyzed with fear. And I don't really quite know why, but I knew it was my flesh. I knew it was my flesh. I knew it, it was my insecurity. It was what, you know, was I going to say the right thing? Was I going to blow the one moment that I had? Did I not have the knowledge? Did I not have understanding of who she was and her background properly? Was I just going to blow it? And I found myself on my knees, which was the right place I should be. The Lord was <laughs> saying, get on your knees, David. And I was praying, at least two weeks prior, I was praying. And each day I was thinking, this is going to be the day. This is going to be the day. And finally, I mean, I was getting up on the, the, when the assignment was due, and I was saying, oh my gosh, I better get in there. So I go up there and talk to my mom, and we have the most wonderful, wonderful discussion, conversation. It was just sweet. It was sweet. She was open to the conversation. She talked to me. She says, nobody's really... Really, you know, her husband, uh, they never really talked about faith. And, and it was very sweet. She didn't come to the Lord, but we're praying. But the point here is that, is that we will always, when we go out and, and witness or want to witness, our flesh will work against us. It will work against us. So what, what do we do about it? Well, really, what does the Lord do about it? And the Lord gives us the answer at, at verse 16 in Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, I will, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. See, the Lord, when He left this earth, He told His, his apostles, I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will send another, another advocate Really, another one like me. Because if you remember, Jesus is also called the advocate. He's saying another one, another advocate, another one like me to accompany you and to walk with you and to teach you and to care for you. And here's the kicker, to defend you. He is the great counselor. He is the advocate to defend us, not to be our counselor before the, the law of justice, before our Father advocating our justification, but rather defending us against the onslaught of the enemy's lies and schemes against us and against our, our own flesh's tendencies and, and desires. And so, so the, the, the Spirit is given to us to be our partner in this, to battle with us. This should change our prayer life. This should change our prayer life. I tell you, there is such freedom in being able to pray to my Lord, you know, when I'm battling my flesh, you know, and saying, Lord, Lord, Holy Spirit, come and do battle for me. Defend me. Fight for me against this tendency. Refine me. Give me the fruit of your spirit that I might be bold in my witness. And so when we talk about walking in the Spirit, that's what that means. It means about continually meditating, about communing, about 
about uh, being you know, associated with all the things of God, whether it be prayer life or whether it be fellowship or whether it be coming here. This, this is walking in the Spirit and reflecting upon His good work in your life, that He is truly present with you, that He is truly your defender, and you can call upon Him as your helper. So see, whereas the flesh is bent on self-exaltation and self-preservation and self-fulfillment, the Holy Spirit is focused on God-exaltation, on self-denial, denial of ourself, and then in, and fulfillment in God's will itself. This is the desire of our Father's heart. We talked about it weeks ago that He has a mission to accomplish. His mission is to accomplish His glory, to, to display His glory to the ends of the earth. And He's calling the people to Himself, you and I and all the other people, all the rest, to be His messengers, to be His ambassadors, to be His image bearers, to let the world know that they will find their purpose in Him and Him alone. 